is Easter this year? Oh, hey, I, I guess being a pastor, I should probably know when Easter is, right? Isn't it interesting? We have year-round Christmas stores, Christmas in July, and while Halloween used to hold at bay Christmas in the malls and stores, it seems it's losing its resolve. Man, we build up to Christmas for two, three months, and yet we often don't even know when Easter is. Well, yeah, it doesn't help that the date changes every year, but hey, Easter's our great hope, our great opportunity. And while there's certainly not the buildup in our culture for Easter that we have for Christmas, and that's probably okay, there certainly should be a buildup for Christ's followers. Easter's an opportunity to talk about Jesus, the gospel, the church, and those are increasingly difficult topics to bring up in our culture, but Easter gives us a bit of a chance there. I want to encourage us to use Easter this year. Instead of complaining and grieving about our culture, speak the gospel to it. Do this. Think about five people. Call them your Easter five. So here's going to be our build-up to Easter. Number one, make my Easter five list. Number two, pray for them each day that they're open to the gospel, to an invitation for their good and well-being. Hey, do something for them. That's number three. Number four, invite them to be with you at one of our Easter services. You know, if every one of us did this, even if they say no to our invitation, that's still over 10,000 people that we've been praying for, doing something good for, and inviting to be with us at Easter, meaning we're engaging them in the conversation of Easter. I believe that can do a whole lot more for our culture than about anything. Hey, let's give it a try. Happy Easter. Well, good morning. We've, I tell you, we've already had a good morning, haven't we? What a, what a great and exciting morning we've had here at the Heights already. And I really believe that as good as it's been, it, it can still get better yet this morning. I tell you what I want you to do. I want you to just begin... Thinking, praying, kind of meditating there in your own heart and mind over this question. Have I received the gospel? Have I received the gospel into my life? At the end of our service today, if, if, if there's any question about that in your life, any insecurity about that in your life, there's going to be an opportunity to, to answer that invitation, to receive the gospel into your life. We're going to have pastors down here at the front. There'll be a chance for you to put feet to your faith and come forward and receive the gospel. And so I just want you to begin thinking now, is that something that needs to happen in my life, God? Is that something that you would have me to do? We are continuing today our, our study of the word gospel, that word that means good news. And last week we began working with 1 Corinthians 15 that gives us kind of a, a textbook definition of gospel, breaks it down into three pieces. And last week we looked at the first piece, which was Christ died. Christ died for our sins. And as we looked at that, we saw that it was a, it was a horrible Death. It was a violent death. It was a very bloody death. And we kind of looked at there was a reason for that. That was on purpose that it looked like that, that it happened like that. Because, folks, the awfulness of his death points to the awfulness of our sin. You know, when I say the, the awfulness of our sin, that's a, that's a heavy phrase. It's a weighty phrase. And it, and it sinks some of us. 
I, I, know, I know there's people in this room right now, there may be people watching uh, through the live stream that, that you've spent a significant part of your life maybe just buried in shame. Buried in shame, buried in guilt. And, and you know, to hear somebody start now talking about the, the awfulness of sin, it's just like it just buries you even a little bit more. Listen, you know what I would say to you? Jesus loves you. Jesus loves you. He loves you greatly. And he died that horrible death, not so that you could feel awful about yourself, but so that you could be free. So that you could come out from under that guilt and that shame and know his love and, and his forgiveness. Man, that's what I would want for you to be able to grasp today. But while I would say that to that individual, those individuals, you know, I think we're at a place in America where, where our big problem is not that we're all just covered up in shame and guilt. As a matter of fact, I would say I think the challenge in America right now is kind of as a people, we've got no shame at all. We've got no shame. We don't have any guilt. I mean, hey, I'm fine. What's the problem? Now, I think as people are saying that, don't misunderstand. I don't think people are proclaiming their perfection. I, I don't think people are walking around saying, I've never done anything wrong. I don't have any problems. I don't have any issues. No, I think their idea is everybody's got problems. Everybody's got issues. Everybody's done something wrong. Therefore, well, really, nobody has. You know, what, what, what's the big deal? It's just the way it is. And, and I think we even have the potential to carry that attitude before God and say to Him, what's the big deal? Why shouldn't I be loved? Why shouldn't I be forgiven? Why shouldn't I have access to heaven? Well, let's, let's think about that a moment. What, what is the big deal? I mean, have I really offended God? Have I really hurt God? I mean, how, how can we look at that? Well, maybe one, I, I would say, objective way we can kind of walk through and, and just see maybe where the difference is between me and God, the offense is between me and God, is, is to look at the Ten Commandments. Now, to look at the Ten Commandments means we need to understand what they are. Because I think sometimes we look at them the wrong way. The Ten Commandments are not ten arbitrary random rules. They're not ten random ideas because, well, I'm a God and I've got to come up with rules so people can't get in. Now, that's not what the Ten Commandments are. They're, the Ten Commandments are ten expressions of who God is, of, of what God is like. That They are ten ways to experience God, to experience life. To experience God and life in beauty and in perfection. You see, the reason God says, thou shalt not lie, is because He's truth. He is true. To lie is to mock Him. To lie is to attack what He is. Do you understand what I'm saying? I didn't say God's real truthful. I didn't say God always tells the truth. I said He is truth. So the lie is an attack against who He is. So let's think about these ten ways he expressed himself. Like, for instance, one of the Ten Commandments says, Thou shalt not create idols. Thou shalt have no graven images before you. Now, my guess is right away we're all ready to put a gold star by our name. I haven't done that. I haven't carved any idols, don't have any idols. I don't bow down and, and worship any idols. I'm good on this one. It's good to have one under your belt, right? Nothing like starting the game one to know. If that's all that command means. 
You know, folks, that, that command is not just about something you and I might carve or paint or, or shape. You know what really, that, what graven images, what idolatry is about? It's about making God in my image. It, it's about shaping God. It's about molding God. It's about managing God, controlling Him. So if I want God to go with me, to bless me, to be a part of what I'm doing, well, then i got a little idol. I, I can carry him with me and take him where I want to. And if I'm going somewhere where maybe it wouldn't be so good to have God with me, I leave him at home on the shelf. If I don't want him watching what I'm doing, I just turn him the other way. Say, well, yeah, but you're still talking about I don't have idols or anything like that. But do we form idols in our mind? Do we carve out God in our mind? I think we do. As a matter of fact, I think there's a phrase that maybe a lot of us have heard, maybe even a lot of us have said, and maybe did it in the middle of Bible study. You know, when I like to, when I think of God, I like to think of Him as. You know what you just did? You just carved out a God for yourself. You may even be using truth. But when I think of God, I like this part of God. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shape and hold on to this because there's some parts I don't like so much. There's some things about God that I don't find so attractive. I'm going to carve those out. I'm going to move those to the side. We carve in our mind. Probably not used just as much as that one, but it's it said a lot. I bet you've heard somebody say, well, I, I couldn't worship a God who would. Who, who would what? Not, not reach the level of perfection and justice and morality that you have? I mean, isn't it funny that we have in our mind, you know, I've got some standard, I've got some sense of the way things are, and God just hasn't, hasn't arrived at that. God hasn't reached that standard that I, that's crazy. But see, that's what we do. We form and fashion a God where I actually think I, I might know more, I might have a better understanding, I might have better justice. Folks, on some level, we all do this from time to time. So I'm sorry, I'm going to start us off 0 and 1. 0 and 1 where we are. How about this one? Thou shalt honor thy parents. Do we really need to talk about this? Ever lied to mom and dad? Ever disrespected mom and dad? Ever disobeyed mom and dad? Ever ignored mom and dad? Ever talked bad about mom? Let's just say 0 and 2 and go on, can we? Can we just do that? You might be thinking, well, yeah, but I haven't done that recently. Well, yeah, but it was a long time ago. Hey, did you ever stop and think about this? If you ever break a command once, you've broken the command, period, right? If you break it just one time, you have now broken that command. And let's be honest, folks. It really is our issue that we just broke it once. I just got this one place over there. No, that's not it. How about another one? How about uh, thou shalt not commit adultery? Ah, that's here in the room right now. Yeah, there, there, there would be those of us in the room that have to say, yeah, I've, I've done that. Sadly, while there are some who clearly know they've done that, there's a whole lot who maybe don't recognize that they've done it. I would imagine some of you know where I'm going with this. You know what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, you know, if, if you lust in your heart after someone, and by the way, that doesn't have to entirely be sexual. And that is not just a male issue. 
when I start to lust in my heart, when I desire somebody else in my heart, when my emotions, when my heart gets a little bit quicker, when I begin to shape my mind around that person and, and this idea of that, that person, that begins to become, Jesus said, not me, Jesus said, that's adultery. Now, you know, for our time this morning, I'm not going to maybe unpack that all the way it should be to, to be fully understood. But if you just would kind of imagine a spectrum here. Okay, this is the, 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 this is the adultery spectrum. This is innocent and this is guilty. Jesus said, the moment my mind and my heart start to go there, I am rapidly moving down the spectrum of adultery. And I am moving from innocence to guilt. Say a lot of us have been there. Say most of us can say we're zero and three right now. How about this one? Thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's stuff or his wife. You know that one's kind of funny, isn't it? I mean, you stop and think about it, folks. The whole entire American economy is driven on coveting. Now, that's not the way we say it. If you actually were read about it, you'd say the American economy is driven on consumerism. What's consumerism? It's me consuming. I'm, I'm never satisfied. There's always new. There's always more. There's always better. And I see the new and the more and the better by what they show me in commercials, by what my neighbor has, by what you have. And you know, it used to be that I knew this wasn't quite right. I would feel this jealousy in me. I would feel this, this lack of gratitude in me. And, if, and boy, if, if my mom or dad saw that, they'd stop that. Don't, don't be jealous. Don't, don't be ungrateful. We knew that was wrong. You know, have you noticed in our culture today, it's not wrong to covet. And, and by saying it's not wrong to covet, I'm not saying just that it's okay to desire what others have. We've actually kind of come to this place in the American society where we so relish coveting that we hate somebody that has what I don't. And we actually think it's right and normal and fair to call them out in public. There's something wrong with you for having something that I don't have. I mean, as a society, we hate the haves. Because I don't have it. That, God addressed that. He said, that's, that's not okay. That's not how you're... What did we say a moment ago the Ten Commandments are? They're a way to find real life. Real beauty, real perfection. That's not the path for it. So 0 and 4. Because we've all done that. Now let's just stop right here. This is getting depressing. Right? And let's be honest. Are, is any of us, is our score going to get any better if we deal with thou shalt not lie, thou shalt not steal, and thou shalt not take the Lord's name in vain? Really? Is any of our scores shooting up? And, and that's just the 10. I mean, folks, do you realize the rest of Scripture, all the other commands in Scripture roll out of the 10? For instance, a lot of us probably thought, I've never murdered anybody. It says, thou shalt not murder. Now, Jesus said the same thing about murder that he did about adultery, this whole thing in your heart. But let's think about murder in a positive way. What's the positive way of saying, thou shalt not murder? Wouldn't it be, thou shalt wholly respect life? Thou shalt promote and love life? Well, think of the commands that come out of that idea. Love others. Because when you love, you don't kill. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Because when it does, Satan gets to move in. He starts to build that anger. He builds that hate. And pretty soon you can have a very murderous idea in you. Yeah, love. Protect life. Forgive. Don't let the sun go down on your anger. Protect. Help. All these commands come out of that one. 
Does our score go up any when we start looking at all the other commands? No, it doesn't. The reality is, folks, there is absolutely no end to how much and how often you have proved that you are nothing like God and you're nothing like His heaven. Now again, there might be this mindset, well, he should get over it. Stop and think about that. Do I want God to get over it? Do I want him to throw open the door? I tried my best. I'm a pretty good person, especially compared to all these other people. You should, I've only told a few lies. My lies weren't that bad. So God lets me roll into heaven, right? Because that's what he would do if he was good. And guess what heaven now has in it? A liar. Do you realize that the moment God stops caring, the moment God starts saying it's no big deal, the moment God says, you're right, come on, then heaven ceases to be heaven and it becomes the hell we've created here. He's not doing anybody a favor by saying sin is no big deal. You and I are horrible and we are awful in our sin and we are awful in our offense against God. Now, right now, there's got to be one or two people thinking, I could have stayed home and felt this bad about myself. I have to come up here to hear that. Hey, you know what? There's a purpose in this. You can't enjoy and you can't celebrate good news until you understand how bad the bad news is. And what we want to look at today is the good news. It helps to have a backdrop and understanding of the bad news that we're residing in as we now go and we celebrate and look at the good news. Would you turn with me today to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? That's where we were last week. That's where we're going to be next week. If you have a hard time finding it, put the bulletin in it when you get there and keep it there till next Sunday. You'll be ready to go. Because we're coming back here next week. As you can see, it's well over near, kind of near the end of your Bible. Well over halfway through the New Testament. Get past John, Acts, Romans. There's 1 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians. You've gone too far. Come back. 1 Corinthians 15. Uh, we're kind of looking at verses 1 through 8. Today I'm only going to read verses 1 through 5. And just like last week, just like next week, we're really honing in on verses 3 and 4. That's kind of the center of where we're at. So let's be, let me begin. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. Because that's what everything about is about here. Everything Paul's saying, everything he's writing, every, everything he's teaching about here, it is about the gospel. Now I write to you, I remind you about the gospel that I preach to you, which you received. Let me take you back to that question that we started with. See, he's writing, implying that you and I have received the gospel. Have you? Have you received the gospel? You might be wondering, well, how, how do I know for, I think I have. How, how would I know for certain? Yeah, you take me, for instance. It was 35 years ago. 35 years. How do I know what, what I did 35 years ago still means something today, still counts for something today? Well, let's kind of see how he describes this. Which you received in which. I mean, if you received it right. In which you received in which you stand. Man, is the gospel something I stand on? Is, is whatever I did back there 35 years ago, is that something today that I still stand on? It is my hope. It's my life. It, it is the way I process life. I look at everything. I look at every person. I look at every situation through this great truth. I am loved. 
and I am forgiven and I have a future. I have heaven. I have hope. Is that how I look at? Is that what I stand on every single day? He says not only stand on, but he says, if you hold fast to the word, is that what I cling to? Man, a lot of us will go through life, different events will happen, different things will happen. Man, I don't know if I can be loved. I don't know if I'm lovable. I don't know if anybody loves me. I don't know if anybody likes me. Man, I don't, after what I did, I can't imagine God loving me. After what I've done, I can't imagine God wanting me, wanting me in heaven. No, I, every day, not just once, not, not just back there May 12, 1982, but just as much today. I hold fast to the gospel. I cling to the gospel. Is that true for you? Do you hold on to it? It's your great treasure. It is your great hope. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Unless, unless you believed in vain. We talked about that last week, didn't we? Unless I believed. What's that mean to believe in vain? Well, I know, I know I had this moment back there at May 12th. 1982, it was, it was, boy, I tell you, I really felt God. I, I heard God. I know there was this great experience back there. What would it look like? What would it mean to believe in vain? Well, as I start to leave that moment, because I can't live life back there in May 12th, 1982, can I? No, I've, I've, I've got to go to May 13th, 1982. And sooner or later, I have to end up, you know, like in, in March of 2017. You know, as I leave that moment... Let's be honest, for some of us, what's really real is that I left that moment back there. Yeah, I know, I went to VBS or this youth camp or, gosh, this friend shared something with me and I was going through something. But the truth is, as I traveled through life, as I left that moment, I left that moment. I I left it back there. It has has little to know. It's not, I don't stand on that. I mean, I think about it every now and then, but I, I don't stand on it. I don't cling to it. It's not what I hold fast to. Yeah, there is the possibility that I could travel down the road 35 years and find out what happened there wasn't real. I believed in vain. Have I received the gospel? What is this gospel? Verse 3. For I delivered to you, I I gave you what I also received. There there it is again. Paul says, I've received the gospel. Well, what is it? That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Paul gives us there a a three-piece definition, if you will, of the gospel. Again, last week we looked at that first part. Christ died for our sins. His blood and his death was substituted for my blood and my death because by the power of God, he could recover. He could recover from paying that. I couldn't. See, it can be my death that pays for sin. It it can be my blood poured out. And if you weren't here last week, we we talked a lot. We explained from Scripture why blood, why death, why is, is that the payment. It could be my blood and death, but I can't recover from that. If if I lay down my blood and death, I cannot recover from that payment. If I go through physical death, still in my sins, I'm now eternally separated from God. I can't recover from the payment. But Jesus could, and Jesus did. He was resurrected, showing that you and I can be resurrected. We're going to cover that next week. But today, after kind of getting grounded in this idea that Christ died in our sins, we move on to part two of the definition. He was resurrected buried 
Now, I'll be honest with you. When I read that over, I mean, a lot of years now I've been reading this passage. He was buried. I just kind of skip right over that. That doesn't, that doesn't jump out and grab me. That doesn't seem like the big, a big piece of the gospel, does it? I mean, really, could we pull out the word burial and just say Christ died for our sins and he rose again? As a matter of fact, you've probably heard those two things presented in the gospel, right? You don't even have to say the word burial. Burials, that's no real new information, is it? And oh my gosh, would we be wrong? The price Jesus paid did not stop when he closed his eyes. See, we have this kind of wrong assumption that, that when we close our eyes, when we're pronounced dead, that, that's just kind of it. We just cease to exist. It just becomes dark and there's, there's just nothing. And yet nowhere in the scripture does it say anything like that. It never says that even for a millisecond we lose consciousness because we don't. See, Jesus not only paid for his our sins on the cross. He not only substituted his death for our death, but folks, he went to the place of the dead. He, he didn't just put his toe into the water of death and pull it back out. Of I felt it. I, I, I felt it. I did it. He didn't just take a bite out of death and swallow. Oh, that was horrible, but I did it. No, he, he, he took on death and he went to the place of the dead. Now, to understand what's happening here, understand what's going on here, I need to give a little bit of background information. For some of you, this might sound like something you hadn't heard. I promise you it's in the Scripture, but I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time developing it because it's just background information today. But, but I promise you it's all straight out of Scripture. So when Jesus goes to the place of the dead, what are we talking about? When, when a person dies... And let's, let's say, first of all, when a believer dies, when somebody who has received the gospel, somebody who has trusted in Jesus' death and blood and what he did for them, when, they trust, when he trusts them, they become a child of God, they're forgiven of sins, eternal life, heaven's their future, right? So when they die, instantly they go to paradise. Remember when, remember when the thief on the cross next to Jesus actually received Jesus, actually received the gospel in that moment, and Jesus turned to him and said what? Today you will be with me in paradise. Paradise is where we go. So what's paradise? Well, the first great thing about paradise is it's the presence of the living God. It, it, it is everything we've lived for. It's everything that we've been created for. It is beauty. It is perfection. It is glory. It is, it is living in the presence of God that you will see, you will know, you will reunion with other believers, family, friends that have gone before you. It is, it is very much the beginning of heaven. But notice I said the beginning of heaven. Paradise is not heaven. Heaven is a future deliverable from God. Heaven is a future event. So where we go right now, this second when we die, is to paradise. That's where the believer goes. But what about somebody who's not a believer? They've not received the gospel. Their life is not under the blood of Jesus Christ. They go instantly to the place of the dead. In the Old Testament, this is called Sheol, S-H-E-O-L. You see it used a lot, talked about a lot in the Psalms. In the, in the New Testament, it's called Hades. Same thing, just a Hebrew word and a Greek word. Hades, H-A-D-E-S. Both words, both ideas mean the place of the dead. And much like paradise is to heaven, Hades is to hell. Hades is not hell. 
But it is the beginning experience of hell for those who are outside of Christ, who've not received the gospel. Jesus tells a story about this. I want to read it for you. I'm not going to read the, the entire story. Uh, I, I would encourage you maybe to read it a little bit later in full. But it's Luke 16. Luke 16 verses 19 to 31 is, is the whole story. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. Luke 16, 19 to 31, the whole story. I'm going to begin reading in verse 22. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. There's the word dead, buried. And in Hades being in torment. I mean, it's just instant and immediate. Again, there's no idea of ceasing to exist. There's no idea of moving into nothingness. But they, they both move from one experience to the next experience. One to paradise, one to, one to Hades. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and he saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. Verse 25, I'm not going to read, Abraham basically says no. Uh, that's not going to happen. Verse 26, he explains why. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. Did you hear that? So again, not quite our focus today, but I think it's a point we need to stop and, and camp on just for a second. Folks, the time to receive the gospel is in this life. I mean, if you reject it today, you... And if you wake up tomorrow, then you can, there's that opportunity tomorrow. And if you choose not to receive it tomorrow and you wake up again following days, I mean, you could have the opportunity for years until you die. And when you die, it's set. There's no changing after death. The decision, what we do with the gospel in this life determines where we spend eternal life and there's no crossing over. Look at this, not even temporarily. It's, it's not, not only is it not saying that you can't change your status on the other side, you can't even go and visit somebody on the other side. There's no crossing between the two. Verse 27, And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, They, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. When he says to them, they have Moses and the prophets, that's equivalent to saying they have the Bible. They have the Bible. So do you. Got one at home, got one on your phone. And each and every day I make a choice about this. I I can read it or not read it. I, I can believe it or not believe it. I can obey it or not obey it. I've got the Bible. But am I recognizing that what I do with this is going to determine how I spend eternity. Because it's only here that I find out what my problem is. It's only here I find out who God is and what He's like and what He has revealed about Himself. Because He's not the product of my mind. He is the product of who He reveals Himself to be. What I do with this will determine that eternity. You realize what Moses said, he, he, or Abraham said, he just flew in the face of our total natural way of thinking. You know what he said? They don't need a miracle. They don't need a miracle. They don't need a visit from the dead. They have the word. And what they do with the word will determine it. 
Now, what, what, what did we, we, in that story, we, what did we learn about the place of the dead? Three words stand out in my mind. Anguish, torment, and flames. I guess one other idea stands out in my mind, and that's that guy wanted more than anything for his brothers to not be there. You know, to me, that kind of answers a kind of a common misconception that maybe, maybe hell is tempered a little bit. Maybe hell might not be quite as bad because, I mean, hey, I will be there with some friends, right? I'll be there with some others like me. Matter of fact, I even saw a t-shirt once. I don't remember how the whole statement went, but it said something about I'd, I'd rather be in hell with my friends or I think it was party, actually. I'd rather party in hell with my friends. I, I don't remember how it was finished. But there's this idea that, hey, if I'm there with people I know and love. Except what we learn from this guy is if you're genuinely experiencing hell, then the last thing in the world you want. Let me, let me rephrase that. The last thing in hell you want is somebody you know and love and care about to be there with you. That's all that's all on his mind. I want my brothers here. You know, and this whole idea that I'm going to enjoy something in hell. You understand, hell is, it's not flames. It's not flames that make hell hell. What makes hell hell, what makes Hades Hades is, is the inability to experience God anymore. Do you realize even in what we refer to sometimes as hell on earth or, or some evil that we're in the midst of. Do you know on this earth you're always in the presence of God. And God's presence allows for God's goodness. You, you know what is a product of God's goodness? Laughter, cutting up, having fun, a warm embrace. All these things that make life bearable. All these things that make life, well, good. Those are from God. In Hades, in hell, I am totally separate. There will be a no enjoyment. You, you may have somebody there you know, but there will be no enjoyment of that person. Hell is the most complete, full experience of total darkness and isolation. It is the complete and full experience of being absolutely alone. And folks, that's where Jesus went. Jesus went to this torment. He went to this anguish as, as a substitute for you. The flames licked his body as a substitute for you. I actually believe that what he experienced in Hades was beyond our ability to compare much worse than what he experienced on the cross. In kind of a theological conundrum that I can't quite work through understand, in, in the place of Hades, Jesus was separated from God the Father. Jesus, who is all good, was separated, unable to experience good. He went there, and he went through that, and he experienced that so that you and I would not have to. Of course, we know the Bible says he went there for three days, right? Three days does not necessarily mean 72 hours. In the, in the Hebrew way of counting, not only in the Bible, Hebrew literature, Hebrew history, any portion of a day is a day. So Jesus died on the cross. We know it was around 3 o'clock on Friday afternoon. I've, I've been there, the distance from the cross to the, to the tomb. I mean, they're, they're, they're within sight of each other. 
I mean, once he was taken down, I don't, I don't know how long they tarried there at the base of the cross. I, I don't know how long that it would have taken them to carry him over the tomb. It wouldn't have taken very long. Let's say 4 o'clock. 4 o'clock, 4.30. They, they've placed him there in the tomb. Well, that's only 8 hours now to midnight, but that's one day. Friday's one day. All 24 hours of Saturday, that, that's two days. And then Sunday morning, I, I don't know when he was resurrected. I know that by sunrise, he was gone. I know that by sunrise, that's the witness, the testimony of the ladies that, that went to the tomb. He wasn't there. So sometime between midnight and sunrise, he was resurrected. But that's three days. I wonder why three days? Well, why, why three days? Why not three minutes? I'd respect him for three minutes. Wouldn't make me think any less of him if it was three minutes. Three hours. Of course, I guess we could go to the other side, right? Why not three weeks? Why not three years? Well, my professional, theological, well-trained opinion is I don't have a clue. I don't think there's anything in Scripture that suggests why. Three days, not three weeks, three years, three hours. I don't know. But I, but I know this. God knows God the Father knows why it took three days. And it's His justice, it's His righteousness, it's His holiness that is being satisfied. So I guess He gets to make that call. There He is, feeling that anguish and that torment, those flames licking His body. And realize, folks, as Jesus does that for you and me, He actually never did tell a lie. Not one. Not a little one, not a big one, not anyone. He actually did 100% of the time obey and honor and respect his mom and dad. He's not there experiencing any of this. He showed us what it looked like to live the law perfectly. And then he goes and pays for what you and I have always and completely done imperfectly. So they took him off the cross over to the tomb and they, they, they set him down there and, and it was, I mean, it was what it was. He was a corpse. I've had a lot of experience with death being a pastor, probably guess not as much as a doctor. I would imagine a lot of you have experienced death on, on some level. Maybe you stopped by to see somebody that was dying any day now, any moment now that they're dying. And you, you remember the heaviness of that, the difficulty of that, the, the sorrow and the grief in that moment? I would imagine a lot, a lot smaller group was actually there at the exact moment they drew their last breath. I mean, I've been around a lot of death, but it's still just a handful of times that I was actually there in the exact moment that they, they drew their last breath. Now, now they've just died. And then it becomes a much bigger group of us. We, we may not have been there when they were dying. We, we weren't there when they died. But we, we went to the funeral, right? I mean, there's the, there's the casket. There's the grave. There's, there's the corpse. There's the, the body. And there's, there's different levels of kind of grief and sorrow and overwhelmingness all along that. But there is something hard about the corpse, the casket, the burial. Because there's that just... I mean, y'all have been there. You know what I'm talking about, right? There's that finality. And that's where Jesus was. He wasn't dying. He hadn't just died. He was, he was dead, dead. But fully alive. And fully experiencing everything that comes 
for a sinner in the place of the dead. And he experienced that so that you would not have to. You know, when I, for, for me, when, when you start to see the, the bigness of what God was willing to do, what God in fact did, all of a sudden now it makes total sense to me why God doesn't accept our good works and efforts. Why God doesn't accept our religiosity. I mean, if God would send his son to do that and then turn to me and said, well, shoot, man, 85% church attendance your whole life? Oh, I'll give it to you. Come on in. Well, if I could get in on that, then why did he send his son to do that? Would that not be mocking everything Jesus did? Oh, did you see I wrote a little love note, an encouraging moment? Folks, it is, the, it is Christ plus nothing. Because Christ is everything. Is that the gospel that you've received? Is that the gospel that you have come under? If you've got any questions about that, any uncertainty about that, folks, I would like to, on behalf of God, I can't say I'm giving it to you. It's not my gift, right? But I'd like to give you that opportunity right now to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're going to have pastors coming and uh, they're going to be lining up here uh, uh, across the front. Obviously, this is a little bit different than what we usually do, but I, I, I want to... I want it to be clear in your mind what you're doing. I want there to be a crystal moment, not a kind of, sort of type thing. And I want to help you put feet to your faith. Because, you know, really, that's the challenge of our whole life, right? I stand on the gospel. The question that Jesus asks is never, did you have an experience with me back there somewhere in your life? It's have you received the gospel? Are you standing on the gospel? Are you clinging to the gospel? In a moment when our congregation stands and worships and sings to the God, the Savior who saved us. If you need to receive the gospel into your life, I want to encourage you to, to take a step of faith. Come forward and tell one of these pastors that I want to receive the gospel. I know you might be in the middle of a row and I don't know if I can get out of here. Listen, I promise you, I promise you, I promise you. If you'll just tap the person next to you and say, I need to go down, they'd be happy to slide out of your way. Ah, everybody's going to be looking at me. No, they're not. They'll be celebrating with you, those who do see. Because all of us in here have done that. Would you come forward and tell one of these pastors, I want to receive the gospel. They'll pray with you, celebrate with you. They'll probably put you with somebody that you can go out for just a few moments and, and talk with and maybe answer any questions. Because we want to do our part to not create a moment where you have a vain belief. We're not trying to usher you through an emotional moment. We're, we're trying to help you make a, a really solid decision about what the gospel is in your life. And we just want to make sure that you, you've answered any, we've answered any questions that you might have. Now, you may come down and say, I don't have any questions. I want to receive the gospel. That's good. We can go with that. But if you have questions, we're ready to talk with you about that and answer that. It'll take just a few moments. If you're here with somebody, I can't do that right now. People are waiting on me. I promise you won't take 10 minutes. They, they won't wait on you 10 minutes as you set eternity in place. Amen. When our congregation stands and sings, would you take that step of faith? Come forward, tell one of these pastors. I'm going to have the pastors start coming now so you can see who they are. They'll, they'll be down here at the front. You just come forward and tell them you want to do this. Maybe you're here today. You've already received the gospel. 
But boy, as you're just reminded afresh of who Christ is and what He did for you, maybe you're thinking, man, I really need to follow through and, and follow the Lord in believer's baptism, or I need to get connected with His church and be a member of His bride, that which He loved and died for, the church. And if you want to have questions about baptism or being a member here, you can come one of these pastors and we'll get you in that process also. Have you received the gospel? Let today be the day you can for the rest of eternity say, yes, I have. As we stand and as we sing, you come, you come and receive the gospel of Jesus Christ.